Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday, and it has been way too long to have Tim Miller back on. Tim, happy Friday. Happy weekend. Way too long. You're always bumping me for that Adam Kinzinger. What, just because he, you know, fought in the military and was in Congress and, you know, has a snappy Twitter feed now? That's fine. Okay. That's fine. If you, if you have, if you have a new love, but you were always in my heart. I always knew that we were going to do the catch up. And of course, you've been being a road warrior in Iowa this past week. I want to talk to you about all of that. So, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was sitting down here with you, Tim, um, I, I need your advice on something or, or just your thoughts on all of this. I love that. I've, I've thought about whether we need to add a life coaching. Segment. Yeah, yes. This is exactly I what like I, I could be a good life coach. But anyway, one ahead. of the experiences and, and you wrote a whole book about this over the last seven years has been w- watching people, you know, lose their minds. And I don't mean that in some metaphorical, you know, you know existential way. I mean, losing their minds. People have just... It's like you can feel as if all of the neurons have just fried themselves with all the crazy. And every conversation that I've had over the last couple of weeks eventually comes back to, uh, so how do you stay sane? How are you going to get through the next year and a half? I mean, mean, isn't it part of you where you look at the calendar and you go, oh, my God, okay, it's going to be something. I mean, it's a year, but we have to go through this again. And when I, when I say that people are losing their minds, I mean, I think people are, they emotionally are fried out by all of this. It's mm. the stupidity, it's the pressure, it's the relentlessness. We're all overwhelmed, and let's be honest with it. I mean, people are listening to this podcast, but then they're probably nodding their heads but because there's, there has to be some days where you go, it's, it's, a, it's just too much. So I don't know, what, what is your life coaching? How, how, do we, how do we not become completely insane? Yeah. Over the next year. I'm, I'm thinking about prospectively. You don't know what I mean, by the way? Do you, do you think I do. about the last seven years, the number of people who something's happened to them? And I understand it. I mean, you cannot be an emotional, intellectual punching bag, you know, day in and day out, week in and week out without paying a price. So I don't know. Tips. Yeah, there's a lot of broken people. I've broken I was people, yeah. on the end of COVID that like one person on every text chain I'm on has completely broken. Yeah, um yeah. and uh, you know, and sometimes that might mean going crazy and radical, and sometimes that means just I just don't want to talk about politics anymore, which I understand that just completely mm-hmm. checks out. You know, my negative side of what you're saying is I, I think part of the reason why it's so daunting is that, like there's really no like light at the end of the tunnel, you know, yeah. which makes this a little different, right? Uh, even in 2016 and through 2020, it's like, oh, we got rid of this guy and then things are going to get better. And like, that isn't really there. There's right. no light at the end of the tunnel, the Republican party. And, you know, we can all quibble over how much everybody likes Joe Biden. I, I might like him a little more than most, but even still he's an older yeah. and there's no real, you know, it's not like there's some excited, uh, everybody's so excited that we're going to get to move on to this other thing. And I think that that is, is yeah. hanging over all of this. I, you know, for me, there are two things. One, and, and I hope this is useful for our listeners when we talk about this, it is actually good for my brain to be out there with the real people. And I think that the exception, I, 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 it did not give me, I don't mean this in the Pollyanna optimistic sense, uh, as you're about to find out. I didn't go to Iowa and think, oh man, people are really great and good out there and things are going to turn out better. Mm-hmm. I don't mean it like that, but there's just something 
about the the just parade of horribles on your social media feed and in the emails that gets to wear on me. Mm -hmm. And so actually being out there and kind of having an engagement and learning the nuance and even if it's a dark, you know, hearing about people's real stories. I mean, I just I, like I had a very interesting conversation with a woman who was there on January 6th. And you can tell she's one of the broken people, really. But she had a humanity about her. Uh, she didn't end up going into the Capitol. She didn't do anything, you know, wrong. She's one, she's one of the ones mm -hmm. who's been fooled. And we had a very long conversation. And in some ways, that was nourishing for me, even though it wasn't hopeful, if that makes sense. The other big advice I have for you and for everybody is it's nice to have friends and interests that aren't politics. <laughs> and I just, uh, this has been oh, a big part of my move here. True. I being in New Orleans, I've got a lot of pals yeah. here that don't know about, that don't follow this shit, uh -huh. don't listen to us. I've got a couple of pals here that listen to us. Hi guys. Yeah. But most of them don't listen to us. And I like that. And, uh, and I just think that is absolutely necessary. And when I meet people who say, I love you from MSNBC, my advice is always, maybe one hour less a day. I know I'm not, I hope that my, the bosses aren't listening to this, but just like one hour less a day, finding something else, read some fiction. Turn it off. Just, it's just different just for everybody. Go and, you know, yeah. uh, bird watching it for some people, for you know, LSU football's coming up for me, whatever it is for you. I think, uh, you know, I, my, my book reading is I do one homework, one, one treat. Mm -hmm. So I just go back and forth on my book reading. I give myself a treat. So that's something totally separate from all this. So anyway, that's my life advice. You, let, me, let me maybe pick up right there because um, you, you made a couple of different points. I do, I do think that one of the reasons why people are you know feeling the pressure right now is is exactly as you you put your finger on it. Back, you know, back in 2016 and actually in, in 2020, we we could all sort of we could cling to the illusion that okay, you know. Once this is over, we can get back to our lives, right? right? That you see the end, you see that light of the at the end of the tunnel. And I, I certainly remember that, you know, people saying, well, well what are you going to do next year? And I saying, you know, what? I'll think about next year, because we just got to get through this. And then, then things are going to be okay. And, and four years later, was thinking the same thing. Now, it is hard to think that that it's ever going to get back to normal. And I think that's part of why it feels even heavier after all of this. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, getting out in the world. I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember, you know, a few years back, and I, you know, like you, we we, we can get caught up in social media and, and start to think that that's the world, yeah. and you know, the, the the kind of vitriol and the back and forth and everything. And I actually remember being down. I think I think it was oh, I think it was was it Tucson or, or Phoenix? It was at some event, and we're having an interesting conversation about politics. And I remember being actually surprised to realize that hey this is the real world. These are real people and they're not crazy. They're reasonable. And we're having this conversation and it was really refreshing. So I know exactly what you're picking up on as far as, as the therapy, I, you know, everybody does have something different. I, I do think it's a good idea to turn it off once in a while. You know, I try to cultivate a sense of humor about all of this, which is very, very difficult. And somebody, how can you laugh when American democracy is burning? If you don't laugh American democracy will burn and you will burn with it. Okay. That's not, that's number one. But in terms of like, you know, the way that I step out of it, um, you, you mentioned your, your reading habits. I read fiction, but also weirdly enough, and maybe this is just idiosyncratic, it's therapeutic for me to read histories about other dysfunctional periods of history to kind of realize, okay, we're not the only people who lived through a shitstorm. You know, it used to be really, <laughs> really bad. My favorite television show is Babylon Berlin, 1929 Berlin, because it's kind of escapist, but also it's realized, you know, you realize that, okay, you know, things have, you know, been worse <laughs> in, in, in the past. It is important to do all that. 
And also, you know, you moved to New Orleans. I am, have I talked to you about this? I'm kind of preparing for a major lifestyle change. It's kind of, kind of big for me. Oh, no. No, I don't know if you have talked to me about this. We're doing it live. I am about to have a teenager in the house again. Really? I'm about to go to soccer games I again. love that for you. My French grandson has decided that I am the Ferrari of granddads, and he wants to come and live here and go to school for the next semester. Now, assuming that all of the papers are all approved and all the passports and everything, fingers crossed, you know, at the end of August, I'm going to have a teenager in the house. Wow. Again. Uh, I mean, the teenager, awesome for him. I mean, God, America, you know, I, sometimes we get down in America. America is yeah. great. There's a lot of great reasons to come here despite all the problems we have. Yeah. But he's going to leave France for Wisconsin. I don't. Yeah. That's a little bit of a confusing choice for me, oh. but I'm open to hearing why. Well, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, this country through his eyes. Because, I mean, obviously he, he'll have a different perspective, but he's very excited. I mean, he loves soccer. He signed, I've signed him up for the suburban soccer leagues and everything. He visited the school, the middle school and everything. And because his mom, my daughter, is an American citizen, he and his brother just got their American citizenship last week. Got it. And so he is a dual citizen, and he's very excited. I obviously, you know, this is one of those things where, I'm like, okay, this is exciting. I'm, I'm proud for him. I hope we don't let him down. You know <laughs> what I mean? I mean, I hope, <laughs> I hope the experience is a good I'm experience. I'm glad it's dual. I guess dual is kind of nice there. You know, you wouldn't want to come back right. and uh, and mm-hmm. come back to the Donald Trump MAGA idiocracy autocracy. That would be a poorly timed move. But I remember thinking, and you know, when this idea first came up, you know, it it seemed a little bit fanciful, and and now he's he's coming and. And, you know, part of me is thinking, well, okay, this is, I, I get, this is a flashback. It's kind of a do-over, being dad type thing. But but also, it's like having, for me, having to go back into real life, having to go to events like soccer matches and parent conferences and meet other kids' parents and things like that. So this is going to be. I'm excited for this. We should start to have a segment at the end of the Friday pod where I get an update on your, uh, on your, on fatherhood part two. Okay, so let's let's talk about the the news of the week, and I want to talk about your Iowa thing. I'm going to put this in the category of the least surprising story of the week. The Donald Trump announces that uh, hell no, he's not going to sign that pledge to support the Republican nominee, which is the requirement to be uh, on the debate stage, which he was never going to be at. So, Tim, it's interesting to me watching all these other Republicans, you know, sign the pledge and sign the pledge because they want to be loyal Republicans and they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be considered a rhino and they don't want to, you know, get on the wrong side of MAGA. And there's Donald Trump who basically goes, yeah, screw it. (sighs) Okay, let's start. These people are so pathetic, Charlie. It's just like really (laughs) gobsmacking kind of. And and it's it's like, we lived through all this. They've learned (laughs) nothing. Yeah, that's why it's exhausting. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, we spent the first 10 minutes, you know, having to do some little therapy yeah. because it's yeah. like, we already did this. I We did the pledge thing back in 2016. I was with Jeb when we were like, this is so stupid that your friend writes Priebus is making us do this. Yeah. And he's taking the train up to New York to try to get Donald Trump, who's never signed a contract that he's kept in his entire life. And he thinks this non-binding piece of paper this. is going to make some fucking difference. Yeah. And we're in a Dunkin' Donuts in New Hampshire and Jeb just like writes down on a on a on the table it's like voted republican since 19 whatever i don't want to i forget what what mm-hmm. the year was that he turned 18 and uh and you know tweeted it out and he's just like there that's my there's my pledge asshole and it's like mm-hmm. donald trump 
they walk into this bait every time where it's like, oh, you know, if we butter them up, if we if we're just nice to them, if we just try to please them, if we just if we just try to keep the lion in the cage, you know, then maybe he'll behave better next time. It's like, how can you still think this? How how could these guys have been fooled by this? And, you know, Nikki Haley, I don't know. Did you see this one? What she did? Yeah, I did. I almost I clicked on it almost. I don't know why. Maybe I'm the idiot. I had like a false sense of hope of something of that maybe that Nikki Mm -hmm. Haley had, you know, an iota of integrity left because the tweet was a teaser and it said, uh, you know, Nikki Haley signs pledge with one caveat. And I was like, oh, what could that caveat be? And I clicked on it. I was like, maybe she was like, if the nominee has been convicted three times of felonies, (laughs) if the nominee is convicted of insurrection against the country, then maybe I want no. In the pledge, she crossed out, you know, I, I would pledge to support the Republican against President Biden and replaced it with President Harris. And it's like, oh, that's so clever. So clever. Cute. So cute. cute. And it's like so funny that you're making a mockery of this as you, for some reason, have decided to pledge your undying loyalty to somebody that could not give a shit less about you <laughs> or this country or the Constitution or any of that. So anyway, the whole thing is so pathetic. So we started off with self-therapy and now I'm having PTSD flashbacks <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> to uh, the moment that uh, Reince Priebus, you know, begged uh, on bended knee for Donald Trump to sign the pledge, I actually had a flashback to exactly where I was standing when I was walking the dogs, talking on my cell phone to Reince Priebus. <laughs> and he was telling me about this. And I was expressing my opinion on like, Reince, why are you doing this shit? And, right. you know, back then, you, you think about the real turning points. They were so terrified back then that Donald Trump would run as a third party candidate, that they had to do this. This was yeah. their way of keeping him in the tent, which, as you point out, you know, is is an absurd, you know, episode of of self-delusion. And they're still doing it so many years later. Again, when I say least surprising story, Donald Trump has made it clear that you either nominate me or I will burn the whole thing down. Right. I mean, there's no third option. Donald Trump will never graciously concede. He will never graciously acknowledge that he lost. He will not graciously support the nominee of the Republican Party if it's not him. And this is really not any different than the position that they were in in 2016. And as you point out, they've learned nothing, absolutely nothing. This is where, just related to this, actually, the political uh, side of this, uh, this is where I've come around kind of changing my view on this. On this, uh, The conventional wisdom still among, I think, the media class and the never-Trump elite classes that anybody would be better than Trump for Republicans. I can't, even among Democrats, a lot of Democratic strategists feel this way. You mean as a, in terms of electability? Electability, in terms of electability. Yeah, okay, right, right. This, exactly this point that you bring up about how he's going to burn the whole thing down regardless, I'm like less convinced that that's even true anymore, right? I, I mean, DeSantis' campaign has been so poor. We'll talk about that. There's nobody else. I, I mean, I guess Tim Scott, like this notion that Tim Scott's going to win, I think is, is, is preposterous. No. And, and, and if one of these guys was to beat Trump, or if one of these guys was to you know, win in some highly contested effort. The idea that Trump is going to send his MAGA forces out to vote for them, you know, then maybe there's a pardon at play. And there's a lot of, you know, potentially interesting things to discuss, no matter how depressing it is over the next year. So there are a lot of ins and outs and what have you. But that said, it's just, it's kind of hard to see anybody else being able to put together a better coalition, as crazy as that seems, because of, you know, Trump's nature, right? Like that there's no... 
There's nothing that you can make him sign that that would not make him be, you know, be a happy warrior, you know, I guess with the exception of, you know, potentially a pardon. You know, I, I heard you make that point the other day and I, I winced at first. And then I thought, no, you're, you know, you're, you're right, especially with this dynamic that we're describing, you know, in terms of electability. I mean, in terms of just substance, no one is as bad as Trump. No one yeah. is worse than Trump. I am sorry. I'm willing to obviously, die on that obviously. hill, including Ron DeSantis. I mean, because Trump is uniquely... Awful, dangerous, everything. Uh, but in terms of electability, that's where that whole argument, you know, falls apart. Because uh, you know, which nominee will be leading a non-split party? So you know, again, Donald Trump is never going to debate, is he? He's not never going to get on that debate stage. I don't think so. The only exception I could think about to this, he, he's definitely not going to do the second. The second one is at the Reagan library and he definitely won't do that because yeah some internal drama some story that uh, you know even the closest watchers of us don't remember but the donald trump remembers of his lizard brain is when the ronald reagan institute you know said that they didn't want to have trump's <laughs> name on something or whatever so there's some slight of donald trump and yep, yep. that's what he remembers more than anything he mm-hmm. doesn't know any policies but he remembers slights so he won't do the second one I think it's 98% likely that he doesn't do this first one. And I think that the right thing is just to watch He is not coming to Milwaukee. Yeah. And and, and so the question is, does like the anger – of, you know, of, of Norma Desmond, as, as you and Olivia uh, have put it, like <laughs> sitting in, sitting in Mar-a-Lago, mm. you know, just kind of watching all of them talk about him two times. Uh, can he not handle not having the spotlight on him and not proving that he is the alpha male? That's the only thing that makes me think maybe it's more like a 50-50 chance that the third one, by the third one, also the number gets higher. So a lot of the riffraff from his perspective, um, from our perspective, you know, the noble candidates uh, will be off the stage by then. You know, it's hard to imagine that the Asa Hutchinsons of the world who are struggling to get to this first threshold are going to get to the third highest threshold. So I don't know, 50-50 on the third debate, but that seems exceedingly unlikely before that. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm more bearish on all of this. Now, I, I know that you and I have a uh, somewhat different perspective on Chris Christie, but part of my reason for thinking he's not going to debate is because he does not want to be on that stage with Chris Christie. Right. And I have to say, I wanted to get your, your take on this. I mean, I'm, I've been a huge you know, Christie skeptic, but I was willing to listen. But man, he is, he is bringing it. Yeah, I know you're you're kind of anti Christie from the foundation, but from way back, <laughs> from the way OG. back. But, but I'm I'm looking at these clips yeah. of of him on social media, and I'm going, whoa! I mean, he has dialed this thing up to a ten, and is just pounding and pounding. Yeah, calling him a honey baked ham time. and the whole thing. I mean, I'll uh, oh, yeah, I, the um, I'll say two things about Christie: one positive and one one concerning. Mm-hmm. Here's the po- the positive is. Thank God he's just doing what he's doing. And and I just and I think that yeah. just as a net comment, it's better to have him out there speaking the truth on Fox News, speaking the truth on that debate stage in two weeks than otherwise. And and I think that he is doing it. See what you want about Asa Will Hurd. You know, I watched I I, I was at this cattle call uh, in Iowa, and it's like Asa goes up there and he just you know, God love him. He just doesn't have it, right? Uh, he's just not making the case, right? Crickets. So it's kind of like, what's the point yeah, then right. if you're not going to make the case? You put those three in the same camp. It's like Christie is clearly the one that's making the strongest anti-Trump case. And there is a value in having that case being made and, and having some people hear it. You know, whether he's a convincing messenger, I'm a little bit skeptical, but it's better that people hear it than don't. 
here's the thing that worries me a little bit though <laughs> can he help himself <laughs> if he yeah. is on this stage in two weeks without trump is he i mean is he just going to be machine gunning the rest of no. the field and then you get to new hampshire and you know if we just kind of play this out from a strategic standpoint i think right now chris if you had to put a gun to my head i'm like who finishes second in new hampshire it seems like chris christie to me wow and, and wow. okay yeah wow it's right but i lived through this right so now i go back to my john huntsman experience right <laughs> we we finished third actually to ron paul but it was a close third it was i think it was you know mitt was in the 40s and it's like ron paul 17 huntsman 16 something like that i'm going from memory um uh, the gap might have been a little wider but okay so let's say that happens this time, right? And it's like Trump 40, Christie 19, you know, whoever, DeSantis or Tim Scott or whatever, 14. It's like, did that help? If the purpose of this was to stop Trump, did it help yeah. for you to take that one-fifth of the New Hampshire electorate that kind of likes the moderate truth-telling guys that I worked for? I mean, all my guys were from New Hampshire guys, but Kane, Huntsman, um, Jeb. Uh, yeah, I didn't work for Kasich, but that, yeah. you know, that voter that was like a McCain, Huntsman, Kasich, or Jeb voter, if you take all of them, but then you don't have anywhere to go after that, you know, did you actually kind of hurt the cause of stopping Trump in the in the long run? You know, it's complicated. And despite my my distaste for Christie personally, I, there are a couple of folks over there that still talk to me, and uh, you know, I, it does seem like they're aware of yeah. that. So it may, you know, hopefully Christie's a kamikaze guy on Trump, and these concerns I have get fleshed out between now and New Hampshire. But those are the concerns I have. Okay, so let's talk about your big story this week. You were you yep. were in Iowa. You were uh, covering them, and I want to I want to hear about this. Uh, but uh, y- you had a really interesting piece that got a lot of traction um, in the in the bulwark about uh, the what the plan B or plan C or what what what, what are we at for the DeSantis people? <laughs> emergency plan? break glass. I think I think it's the emergency break glass. Remind us what their their thinking is for the long game. Well, I was surprised this was happening. So I was in, uh, in I'm in Iowa and um, I was following around Vivek and DeSantis. And well, just as a brief aside, so I did three campaigns in Iowa and the people from the McCain-Romney era are just off the field. And I, and I think that's kind of an untold story. It's just like the people that worked on those campaigns, like they just aren't involved in any of these campaigns. Like most of the, so I was calling all of them doing the, who should I talk to? Who should I talk to? And they would put me to other people who are either younger or a little crazier or whatever, you know, who are still working for some of these campaigns. Mm-hmm. And one of those conversations, a DeSantis Superback person was talking at length to me about how, you know, during this reset, they've got to think about, you know, the short term and getting some momentum back, but they also got to consider the long term. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And I said, like, well, you know, in Iowa, if you, if you get second in Iowa, people are like, he's dead. But is that really true? You know, we've got all these legal cases coming out with Trump and maybe there's an argument for sticking around and getting seconds and thirds and second and, and going into the proportional states and amassing delegates. And we have the money to play the long game in the way that other candidates don't and i'm sitting there listening and i was like oh that's an interesting thought exercise and all that and i was like but do you guys are you guys like seriously talking about that and having meetings i mean so the long game is you basically you know pile up delegates and then what is the latest version of this magical thinking that that you're there when what unicorn happens yeah okay so so it's like (laughs) step a get as many delegates as you can not a majority right because trump's going to have the majority and this is basically conceding that trump is going to win the most of these races right so you get as many delegates as you can and then step b is that jack smith does your dirty work for you or we can get into the trial Mm -hmm. dates and all that but if you're looking at these spring dates 
you know, and step C is a question mark. <laughs> okay. I just, just Trump yeah, decided yeah. to get not run because he, does he cut a deal? Yeah. Does he go to jail? And, and yeah. does he not run for jail? Ma- magical thing. Yeah. So step happens, C right? is a question yeah. mark, but easy. Mm-hmm. So it's like, A, we get delegates. Mm-hmm. B, Jack Smith trials are happening in the spring. C is a question mark. D, we have a fight on the convention floor where we want to have as many delegates as possible so that we have, you know, negotiating power, strength, whatever, as we try to figure out who in Milwaukee, you know, is the actual nominee because it can't be the guy in an orange jumpsuit. I mean, this is just fantastical thinking. I mean, it'd be great for the Bulwark podcast. We'd have a lot to talk about. <laughs> I mean, we could, yeah. we'd be doing live streams oh all day as, they, as these guys shiv each other on the convention floor in Milwaukee. But um, an open convention. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, to me, the big takeaway was A, I mean, this, it's pretty bleak for DeSantis if you guys are even gaming this out at this point. I mean, it's pretty, yeah. we haven't even had a debate yet. We know it's bleak. B, it's like that they would say this. And I checked. I was like, are you sure I can? I, okay. Like, is this just a thought exercise or can I say that you guys are thinking about this? He's like, you can say we're thinking about it. I was like, okay. Oh. I, I mean, I, I just, the whole thing was gobsmacking to me. But I, I will say this it's not a 0% chance, right? I mean, it is crazy and fantastical thinking and we this can't we can't possibly be this lucky to have a Republican convention floor fight with Donald Trump in jail. I mean, uh, you know, pass the champagne if that's happening, but uh, but it's not a zero. The reason why it's not zero, why nothing is zero is because something truly amazing and unprecedented is going to happen next year, right? I mean, something I think it was David Frum who tweeted out that Donald Trump is is on track to be uh, convicted of felonies and to win the nomination maybe in the same month. I mean, it's just, so we are in this bizarre moment that anyone who says for sure they know what's going to happen, we don't. I mean, everybody's making it up as they go along, right? Yeah, right. I mean, I, I, well, I think the one thing that we know for sure at this point is that Donald Trump's going to win a lot of states. Yeah. But even that, you're looking at this, and you had this in the newsletter today, that Jack Smith you know, I was looking at what was it, January third? I don't have it in front of me. January second, yeah. Let's go. Yeah, so I was <laughs> the fifteenth, right? Mm-hmm. And this DC judge seems very amenable. And you know, listen to the Thursday podcast if you want to go in, in depth on how all that you know shakes mm-hmm. out from a legal standpoint. But like, let's say that happens. You know, I do think Iowa is probably the place where he's weakest, and yeah, you know, he's on trial during the caucuses, and and maybe somebody else can sneak out a win there, and then okay, then he wins some of these other states, and he's still on trial, and then it's like there's another trial looming, and and he can't go and campaign, and there aren't cameras in the courtroom. There just are a lot. Yeah, we are very much in our uncharted territory here. I guess is so. I think having complete confidence in predicting anything is foolish. That said. I guess we can have a lot of confidence in predicting that it's it's not like Donald Trump's just going to go away, right? You know what I mean? It's not like he's going to lose, you know, start finishing in fourth place. And that's what we know is not happening. Among the anecdotes that uh, you tell about your trip to Iowa, one the one that stuck out to me was you were you went to to an event that the DeSantis people had, to kind of a, a a small event, and turns out not many people were there. And I, I think you, your picture made the Drudge Report or something like that of you know how how sparse the crowd was. Yeah, it was actually darker than that, Charlie. I, I, I had a moment where I was like, "Am I the bad guy here?" Because it was uh, the picture was at the top of the Drudge Report, and then also then Trump bleated it, and I was like, "Oh no." I've given aid and comfort to the content to the enemy. Tim Miller is now a content provider to Truth Social. I felt bad about that for about two minutes. And then I was like, you know who really should feel bad about this is Ron DeSantis' campaign. I mean, they invited us to, they invited the media to this event. All I did was take a picture. It's not my fault that only 40 people showed up to your event. Now, the dazzling detail, though, that you had was yeah. that Ron DeSantis shows up in a five-car motorcade. <laughs> 
Now, this is the downsized, you know, so he didn't actually take a private jet in a helicopter there, but this is the trimmed down, slimmed down campaign. This is part of the problem with, with Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, you know, wanted to do the Bigfoot campaign. And since we're in the, in the PTSD, sort of reminded me of where Scott Walker was back in 2015, where he was spending money like crazy. His campaign was run by um, Rick Wiley. And their burn rate of money was just staggering. And I think maybe in part the thinking was, let's look as big and impressive. We have to look like the front runner. And of course, he was he was done by September. And by the way, Walker family, you know, inner circle, they to this day hate Rick Wiley. I mean, they just think he effed them over, spent all of the money. He's doing the Haley campaign now. So, uh, you know, the grift continues. Perfect. Just perfect. Great job on that pledge. That's definitely going to move you from three to four percent. OK, so the other dazzling detail that stood out from your account is, is you know, there's Ron DeSantis does his. I mean, look, I, I, it's, it feels like an old story now that Ron DeSantis is really kind of bad at this, that he's not that, that, that great. What was interesting was your account of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who I think is this uh, cycle's, you know, charlatan fake candidate in many ways, but he's playing well on the on the field, isn't he? They like him. Yeah, they, they like it, right? So this is, I'm not making any moral judgments about Vivek. He's touching all of the erogenous yeah. zones. He, he knows how to do this. Yeah. It was a back-to-back event. So I see DeSantis in the morning. It's, I, I go two hours one way from Des Moines, then two hours the other way. You know, they're both rural kind of areas, but DeSantis's area was actually more, you know, there are more towns around uh, Tama than there are around this place. Vale. Like where I saw Vivek, this place was called mm-hmm. Vale. I'm friends with the old, uh, an old chief of staff of a Republican governor there. And I was asking her about, about, <laughs> about these events, like just getting her sense. She's like, I, I didn't know Vale existed. <laughs> I was like, the chief of staff oh, of the governor. That's how small it is. So Vivek <laughs> is out there in the middle of nowhere. I mean, he's in BFE. And his crowd is three times as big as Ron's. His little stump speech is, I mean, a thousand percent more engaging than DeSantis's. Uh, people are into it. Yeah, they're standing ovations. There are cheers. Now, are these people actually going to vote for him? You know, he's 37. Uh, he, I think he just turned 38, actually. Um, he's 37 when I was there. Um, he's, he's Hindu. The third question was about being Hindu. His answer to that was strained credulity a little bit I, you know he kind of he goes well i see us really as all on the same team and i and we believe in one god and i believe in judeo-christian values and i'm going i don't know if i'm an evangelical i'm sitting there listening to that and being like i don't i'm not sure that was that convincing of an answer they were queasy about mormons exactly hindu yeah you know the elephant god you know okay i, I have respect for all all cultures but i'm just talk saying to me about vishnu yeah, talk to me about yeah. vishnu I'm sorry. um I, I don't see also that his happen. his attitudes about pork seem to be problematic. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he does at the State Fair this weekend. Um, So I I don't actually think he's necessarily going to win, but his message, which is very Trumpian, you know, very nationalist, hostile to Ukraine, you know, hostile to elite culture in every in every sense. It was hitting their erogenous zones, as you said. And and if he was a 44-year-old evangelical, I'd be looking at that and going, this guy is clearly in second. He would have dusted DeSantis by now. But, you know, because of his the, his drawbacks, you know, who, who knows if he'll be able to win people yeah. over. But the other the interesting element to this, which shows really this kind of coming back to our first question about why this isn't going away and the deep rot here, is that the Vivek event, the people I talked to, many of them were, they like Trump. And there was one guy in particular who started talking to me about how he thinks Trump is still in charge of the of the nukes in the military. 
And then he says to me, and I was like, oh, okay, interesting. interesting. So you're going to be with Trump then. But like, let's say Trump can't run or something. Who would you be second? And he thinks about it for a while. He's like, I don't know, maybe this guy. I went back to the Vivek staff and I was like, good news. The guy that thinks Trump is still in charge of the, the military, you're, you're number two for him. So you can mark, mark him down on your, on your caucus count. But, um, I, you know, th- there were a lot of Trumpy people there. And the DeSantis, that wasn't true, right? Like it was a lot of more kind of establishment, older kind of Republican types, Chuck Grassley types, people that are playing the field. You know, that A, that's, that's got to be a concern for DeSantis. But B, it sort of shows that like those, those folks aren't, they're not going to snap back, right? They, like maybe Vivek isn't the next, you know, the second coming or whatever, but but somebody that can offer them, you know, that uh, nationalist grievance mongering is really going to be it. So what do you think is going on with Mike Pence? I was, uh, I just retweeted something. I think it was from uh, David French who had a soundbite of Mike Pence being heckled by some super MAGA people who are telling him, you know, you're a traitor. Why did you, you know, why did you betray the country, you know, on, on January 6th? And, and Pence's answer is, I don't know. It sounded pretty good. I'm kind of, you know, is this a new Mike Pence? Is this, uh, the temporary Mike Pence? Uh, is this Mike Pence's moment? What the hell? I mean, I, he, look, this guy's not going to get the nomination. I mean, this is, this is not the party that's going to, you know, go for the guy that defied, uh, Donald Trump. But, what is your take on Mike Pence? Because, I mean, he, he's been a weak tit for, for years, and now suddenly it's like, dude. Yeah, I think it's just happening more than we think, even. I, we had the, there was a video from the fair. Yeah, that's that's you're talking about sharing. It's worth noting that, that many people push back. Now, this isn't a Republican event. It's at the state fair, so you have a mixed crowd. Right. There's some Democrats there. and and But I, that's a good sign just – while we're talking positive signs, you know, that this is still a minority mm-hmm. of, uh, unfortunately, it's a majority of the Republican yeah. Party. Somebody stood up and said, you should shut your mouth yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah so that's yeah, good yeah, yeah. That, they're, mm-hmm. that that's happening. There's still some Iowa nice out there. You know, it's not a total dark wasteland. Mm-hmm. But I think this is happening to them a lot. Um, that woman that I mentioned in the in the lead-in, um, Donna was her name, you know, said she'd been there on January 6th. Mm-hmm. And, and she was disappointed that the other candidates weren't sticking by trump even <laughs> like, like uh, as we're on this podcast going why don't these guys have balls you know don, don is out there going why are they sucking up to a martyr um anyway yeah. um but she said that she told me a little anecdote about how she yelled at mike pence recently at an event so i think he gets yelled at kind of a lot um basically is what i'm saying you do get on the campaign trail having been on some lo- a bunch of losing campaigns uh you get a sense of freedom like once you kind of accept your likely fate. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. yeah. I thought that Jeb's like best days of his campaign were the very first days. I thought we had a couple of really good days and then he gets overshadowed by Trump and it's like, it's a free fall for a while. Yeah. But around Christmas when people aren't please paying clap. attention and the only thing people remember is please clap and that's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, it is what Sorry. it is. Um, yeah. but, but he had some very like convicted, moments right where you know that people aren't going to remember nobody's really going to remember these mike pence moments probably either but like where where he was able to just say what he really fucking thought you know about trump and and where you know i think that he made the moral argument and i think that that's probably happening to pence here yeah yeah that's that makes sense because he does feel more comfortable in his skin which is something that i never would have said about mike pence before yeah like right now kind of awkwardly he's like naturally awkwardly comfortable if that makes sense he's not the most natural person but but it's like it's like he's owning his awkwardness. Did you see the little exchange between him and his wife where his wife's like, mm-hmm. I want to go see the bunnies? And he's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. It was kind of frank and comfortable. I don't know. There was something about it where he said no to know, mother. He said no to mother. It's like he's really, sta- you know, yeah, you can stand up to a protester. But when he says no to mother, you know that Mike Pence is really feeling his oats. 
It is interesting that you put it that way because that was kind of my reaction to watching Chris Christie, that he's becoming more and more comfortable with this. He's like, this is what I'm doing. I, I don't need to overthink it. In politics, obviously, there comes that moment like, oh, my God, I, I could win. It, it might be close. I better watch what I say, right? And and you have to trim your sails. Right. And so that's when you will inevitably become tight and you will become programmed and you stick to your talking points. At a certain point, you go, F it. I'm laying it out. And there is that feeling of liberation. It's the Hillary crying. Yeah, it's Hillary yeah. crying in New Hampshire. It got her comeback after Obama beat her in Iowa. That feeling of liberation is there for sure. Okay, small trigger warning for everybody here because oh, um, no, I, I need to have an earnest moment. Oh, okay, great. We sort of avoided that so far in the in the podcast. No, the the really serious. You know. Okay, so. Next week, we're going to have these indictments coming down from Georgia. Obviously, that will be the big story of the week. Fonnie Willis is going to come down with multiple, maybe racketeering charges. Might not just be Trump. It might be the, you know, a whole bunch of co-conspirators. But here's the deep breath. Here's the earnest moment. The level of the vitriol that is now being aimed at the prosecutors, the judges, and against Fonnie Willis from Trump and Trump world is in many ways just another page from his playbook. But but the intensity, the intensity and the vileness of the attacks are ramping up. And what's interesting about this, and again, interesting is a, is, is a weasel word, what is alarming about all of this is that the threat of violence has been real and growing for some time. But it, now it feels like we are coming to a real ignition point. So this week we had that confrontation in Utah where a guy who'd spent way too much time online and had lots of guns was. Did you see this dude's Facebook page? Yes, I a did. Lunatic shit. And very clearly he was tracking like, anyone who was involved in opposition to Donald Trump or into the cases against Donald Trump, Alvin Bragg, all of those people. He was basically breathing threats, and whether he would have acted on it, we don't know, but the FBI had no choice other than to to check him out and leaving that aside. But just a reminder, there are millions of people out there with guns who are being destabilized, who are being ginned up by this rhetoric, and in a normal rational world, there would be voices out there saying, this is the time when we need to be sober, when we need to be careful, we need to be restrained. None of that is happening. So what do we have? Donald Trump, who has decided that a climate of, of chaos, violence, and fear works for him. He's okay with that. And so he's going to be, he's going to be stoking it. Now down in, in Georgia, they're actually running ads attacking Fonnie Willis. I'm not carrying any brief for her, so but sick. he's actually now, it's one thing for Donald Trump to say that, you know, these racist prosecutors, by which he means they're black. So he's he's going to try to weaponize the race of Alvin Bragg and Fonnie Willis because that's what he does. But he's gone one step beyond that. The Fonnie Willis had an affair with a gang leader she was prosecuting. Now, that's like she's she's not just, you know, a black woman. She's a black woman. And you know what he's saying here? Yeah. Prostitute or whatever. Yeah, so... Yeah, and it was like a fair with a drug dealer or something, gang member, I forget the quote. So w where are we going on all of this? And and we're still only in August. What is the level going to be at in January, in February, in net? What is it going to be like next summer? And you know that, the, I mean, we, we've gone from spending years worried about the threat of 
you know, international terrorism, Islamic terror, radical Islamic terrorism. And now the real threat is us, is domestic terrorism being stoked by the former president of the United States. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, this is where I become earnest. The alarm bells ought to be ringing off the charts. And so we talk about what's going to happen next year. One of the things that we need to factor in is just the contingency of an act of violence. Because again, it doesn't take 10 million people with guns. It can, t- it just takes a handful and we don't know what's going to happen. But I think that there's that danger that we become so numb to what Donald Trump is doing, the threats, the attempt to intimidate and obstruct and everything that we think, well, okay, this is, you know, same old, same old when in fact, no, the context is more dangerous. The language is more dangerous. And I don't know where we're going here, but the, the funny Willis attack feels like we're in kind of new territory, maybe not new territory. Um, and I don't know about you, Tim, but I see no pushback from any of his opponents or Republicans saying, hey, guys, whatever you think about this, this is not the moment to be engaging in this kind of reckless behavior. Yeah, this is where I was going in some ways where it's worse than the rhetoric yet, but it's also worse in that there's no dissenting voices in MAGA world and conservative media world. Because I think back, so before January 6th, the most heightened fear I had for violence was kind of late in that primary season in 2016 when Trump was doing the rallies when he was go- when he was like yeah fuck him up mm-hmm. yeah like yeah. remember he had, mm-hmm. he had a period of time where at the rallies where he was encouraging people in the crowd to hit protesters you know saying I'll pay for your legal bills yeah. and right like it was like Trump's always Trump but but his that you know his rhetoric waxes yeah. and wanes right. yeah, yeah you know and so that was a period where his where his violent rhetoric was mm-hmm. the most heated and at that time you had you know, his opponents, Marco and Ted Cruz and other people within the Republican Party saying this is uncalled for, like, you know, you shouldn't, we can't have this kind of rhetoric. Some events were canceled. You don't see that at all, to your point now. There is nobody. So, so if there's been one example, uh, show it. I'd love to, to give anybody credit, but I, I don't see any example anywhere in mm-hmm. conservative media world, in, in Republican world, you know, beyond the Chris Christie's the myths, yeah. people saying, we have to stop this. Like, like this is going to lead to something dangerous. And, you know, they just want to pretend as if it doesn't exist. And I go back to that Iowa um, barn. I was in that cattle call and it, it made me feel very uneasy because everybody that goes on stage, all of these Republican candidates, everybody that talked, they, they just pretended like it all wasn't happening. Like they didn't talk about the indictments. They didn't talk about anything. And meanwhile, you had, yeah. you know, some people in the room liked that. And then you had these like kind of, agitated Trump fans that are like, why aren't you fighting for my person? They're at, you know, like those people need to be kind of talked off the ledge and nobody's doing that. Like like they're either being stoked by Trump himself and by his most noxious allies, or, you know, that there, there's another class of people that are just putting their head in their sand, like ostriches and hoping that this all gets better sometime with some convention floor fight in, in Milwaukee. I, you know, this kind of fantasy talk. And so that part to me, I think when you combine just the, heightened intensity of the drama around actually convicting a former president and how that how people would respond to that and you saw the interview von hillier did on nbc with somebody who was like civil war calling for yeah, civil war so so people's emotions because obviously we can't live together if we do this yeah right yeah. so the news will be heightened the emotions will be heightened donald trump's rhetoric is heightened the pushback is non-existent 
And, you know, I think a lot of national security experts, domestic terrorism experts said the thing about January 6th was that, that it culminated in a moment, right? Like to have real violence, mm-hmm. you know, you have your one-off people, there's something to be scared of, but then you have your real violence is when it culminates in a moment. We're going to have a lot of those potential moments coming up next year. I think it's exactly And so right. all of that is very unbelievably concerning. The only one last thing, one the only good positive thing that I think we do have going for him is the, the way the DOJ has been so tough on the January 6th the people organizing the violence, the Oath Keepers, all that. I think that has taken some people, some of the people, the troublemakers off the field in a way that is making real real tangible difference. I think that's the only green shoot here and a situation that, as you bring up, is deeply scary and, and very alarming. Well, I agree with you, but the danger does not come from just organized groups. It can come from these lone actors as as well. Sure. You know, and I was thinking back to that period before January 6th and even some of the stuff that you wrote, that I wrote, that we were saying this is really dangerous, this is really dangerous. Well, Bill kept saying, I am alarmed, I am alarmed. And yet, in retrospect, we were not alarmed Bill, enough. Bill was really out there on this. And I remember having a conversation with Denver Riggleman right before January 6th, you know, and he had done some of this work. And he was saying, look, all the signals are, this is going to be really bad. This is going to be bad. And, and he laid out the kinds of things that were happening that would lead to violence. I mean, he called the shot. And then it happens. And people go, oh, my God, this, we are now in a volatile situation. Things are very, very fragile. But to repeat a theme from earlier in the podcast, we've learned absolutely nothing from that. Absolutely nothing. We've seen how people have retconned what happened on January 6th, downplayed it, rationalized it, even now kind of supporting it. I mean, there's there's a real strain of Trumpian rhetoric, and by that I mean coming from him directly, that characterizes you know that 1776, we're going to take down the government as a, as a virtue, as a good thing. So what happened in Utah, Ought to be a reminder. I think people have already forgotten about it, of how bad things can be. So what I'm specifically saying is that we're gaming out 2024. What we haven't gamed out is what happens if there are assassinations? What happens if you have witnesses who are killed? What happens if prosecutors are attacked? What happens if judges are attacked? What happens then? Fair enough if you want to accuse me of Trump derangement syndrome or of being alarmist. I am alarmed. And you go back again to that pre-January 6th, you know, where Bill you know, kept saying, I am alarmed, I am alarmed. And now when we know all the things that were going on, we realize that that alarm was completely justifiable. I mean, it was way worse, much more serious, much more of a close run thing than I think we believed at the time. And we were pretty ginned up on it. We were pretty ginned up, and it ended up being worse than many of us thought. And, yeah, and then you I know. have the other camp, which is the, uh, uh, you know, to, to beat the dead horse on not learning from anything. We have the what's the downside for humoring him crowd. And you remember that, the, the worst background quote in history. What's the worst downside for humoring ever. him for a few months? Here they are. They're still doing it. They're still humoring him. You know, even the people that are running against him are still humoring him. And I, I just, it, it's pretty sick, I think, that you have like these people in, roles of responsibility, you know, whether that be McCarthy or McConnell or whether that be the people at Fox who just like, are making the same damn mistakes they made before January 6th. And I, and I think that, you know, it's like you can just see, uh, hopefully this doesn't happen, but, but, you know, you can just see into the future, which is, you know, one of these terrible events that you laid out occurs you know, they express their concern and then and say the right thing for 48 hours. And then, you know, they go back into their bunker as Donald Trump keeps winning primaries and caucuses. And, you know, there's not much, 
I think that we can do to kind of stop that inevitability, um, except for what's happening to the justice system. So we don't have time to get into some of the other things I wanted to, to talk about. So let, let's, let's make a note to, to talk about this in the, over the next couple of weeks. Okay. Because I think that over the last the last month, I think there's a growing recognition that that even though Republicans have been completely full of shit about uh, some of the allegations they've made about Hunter Biden, that in fact, the Hunter Biden thing is a problem. Ooh, that's a cliffhanger for next Friday. I mean, this is this is where holding two thoughts in your head at the same time is 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 one of those difficult things in this current environment. That yeah, sure. you know, there's no evidence that ties Joe Biden to any any you know breaking of the law, um, any of of that stuff. A lot of the allegations that have been made have been completely baseless, and yet there is a cloud of sleaze that I think is a mistake to ignore. Can we just like noodle this out? I talked to uh, Ron Filipkowski. Yeah, we can noodle on it. Uh, people can go listen to Ron. Um, I talked to him a couple Sundays ago on the Sunday Next Level interview, and he was good on this because he's following all this stuff as closely as anybody and all the accusations in MAGA world. And um, and his advice is, is, in short, basically, that the Democrats need to be better about distancing from Hunter because, yeah. uh, you know, because even if there's no evidence of what happened with Joe, of Joe doing anything, it is pretty gross and there's some political advantage to distancing. So anyway, we can get into it deeper another time. But Ron had some good thoughts, thoughts of that that sound pretty aligned with what you're saying. Well, I think Jill Lawrence had a piece in the in the bulwark about all of this. And, and, and I think, look, are there any crimes? Is there anything impeachable? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean that it's not gross. I mean, that's, that's so, and, and I think that's part of the political reality. And the, the other reason is because Republicans have this deep, deep, deep psychological, cultural, political reason to talk about Hunter, you know, as, as all of the, the criminality of Donald Trump, you know, becomes impossible to ignore. I mean, what do they want to do? They want to talk about the criminality of Donald Trump or do they want to engage in whataboutism and the whataboutism of the moment? And for the next year is going to be Hunter Biden. So you seen a lot of Jared Kushner coverage from that crowd. <laughs> I don't know. The Saudis. Well, somebody how about this for Cliffhanger? Somebody left me with a dark uh prediction for next year, which was uh what if Trump just uh, flees to Saudi? <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> it's like you're worried about Hunter Biden and his shitty and his little small ball bullshit corruption deals. And here we got uh, uh Jared Kushner bringing in a half billy from the Saudis. So anyway. Okay, so this is what I really like that Christie has done because Christie, without any varnish, with you know, completely unvarnished, is saying he was good about reminding people about Jared Kushner working in the White House, then leaving the White House and doing a billion dollar deal with the people he had been working with. I mean, come on, people, you can't show anything remotely like that with the Bidens. But outside of Chris Christie, nobody's really played that Jared Kushner card, which is amazing. Tim Miller. Great to have you back on. We will continue this conversation soon. Sounds good, brother. Talk to you all soon. Thank you all for listening to the Weekend Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back next week, and we will do this all over again. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper and engineered and edited by Jason Brown.